working our way through the Gospel of John. This is part 31, and we're on chapter 7. There are so many important subjects that John deals with. The title I've given to this teaching time is, Is There Any Way to Know Divine Truth with Certainty? Is There Any Way to Know Divine Truth with certainty, and we're looking at verses 14 to 24. John 14, 7 rather, 14 to 24, I will read. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? He hasn't gone through any of the rabbinical training. He hasn't committed himself to the study that we have committed ourselves to? 16. So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. It's kind of a convoluted sentence, but there's some important ideas in there. 19. Has not Moses given you the law? And yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowds answer, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, But judge with righteous judgment. For all those who the only verse you know in the New Testament is judge not that you be not judged. Please notice that last sentence. Judge with righteous judgment. That's from the same Jesus. There's a wonderful strangeness in this text. Uh, Immediately after telling his own brothers to go on ahead of him to the Feast of Booths, In Jerusalem, Jesus arrives midpoint through the celebrations and not only shows his face in Jerusalem, but boldly stands and takes his place in the temple itself. That's verse 14. And in the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. What is the meaning of this apparent reversal in Jesus' plans. We looked at this last Sunday morning. And the answer to that question lies in Jesus' intention not to go up as his brothers requested. Remember, they asked him to go up and perform some miracles, kind of wow the crowd. And Jesus says, I'm not, I'm not, you go. I'm not going up with you right now. When he does come up, and this is only six months before his death at the Passover celebrations. When he does come up, he comes in fulfillment of 
of the prophet Malachi's description, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Malachi 3.1. All of that is in keeping with that timing of the Father that we, we looked at last week. So his brothers said to him, leave here, go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourselves to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come. Your time's always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. We, looked at, we studied these last Sunday morning. It hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Church, this world still hates being told that it's evil. Get used to it. This world does not like being told that it's a sinful place. This world does not like being told that its moral judgments are not correct. This world does not like being told that God has a law that transcends all other laws. Jesus said, I'll tell you why they hate me. I testify that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. So no, Jesus wasn't coming up with his brothers at the beginning of the feast to perform wonders for the applause of the crowd. That's what his brothers are saying. Look, if you want to be known, you got to do stuff in front of the world. Jesus, you you need a handler. You need a manager. You're doing this all wrong. If you want people to know who you are and to recognize your greatness, come up and multiply some bread. Like, do something. People will be wowed. Jesus came right to the temple as the fulfillment of all that had been going on in that temple over the years. He came to the very place where the sacrifices for sin were offered. He came to the place where priests did their cleansing work to bring people close to God. This is the kind of faith and understanding that Jesus was looking for in the people. They had to see him as the fulfillment of the prophet Malachi's word, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The temple, that's where the sacrifices were offered. That's where that Passover lamb in six months was going to be slain at exactly the same time Jesus was being crucified. Jesus says, that's God's timing. That's my time zone. You're in a different time zone, he's saying to these people, his own brothers who didn't believe in him. So it's Jesus' place on center stage in the temple that kind of shapes everything about this text. It's the trigger event in this text. These people want to know. What gives Jesus the right to be doing what he's doing in the temple? There it is. 
the people, especially the religious leaders who spent years in training, they want to know. He has none of the rabbinical training and instruction, 715. That's issue number one. He doesn't seem to take the law of Moses seriously, verses 19 to 24. That's issue number two. And so this sets the stage for this important dialogue. Why should these religious people, why should you, why should I give exclusive endorsement to Jesus as the final authority from Father God? Or in the words of the teaching title today, is Jesus really the only way to absolute redemptive truth with certainty? If you're visiting us, don't panic. Our people are used to it. Point number one. No one has heard Jesus' words rightly until God is heard to be speaking. 14 to 16. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning? He has never studied. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Don't rush over those words. You have to look carefully at the kind of conflict that is building in our text. Two religious systems are colliding. That's what's happening. The Jewish leaders are working from within the system that expects Jesus to fall in to the same long line of other rabbis, other prophets, other scholars. To them, Jesus continues the tradition rather than completes and fulfills that whole tradition. This is the whole argument. To continue the tradition, one gains credentials by learning and then picking up the traditions of previous scholars and rabbis. So in other words, and this is really important, these critics of Jesus bring their predetermined understanding of what they expect from him. He is another in the same chain of religious, religious leaders and experts, maybe even the best one of all, but part of the same group. That's, that's what's going on in these Jewish leaders' minds. In the offensive teaching of Jesus, then, and December 10th, 2023, the offensive teaching of Jesus is he intentionally separates himself from all the other options on the table. That's what bugs people about Jesus. Not that he said, love one another. Everybody likes that. He isn't part of the same chain. In fact, that whole chain of previous prophets and rabbis and scholars and leaders properly understood it all pointed to Jesus and his separation from all others. He is the unique one to whom all of these things pointed. So now, now we're in a position to see where this text is taking us. Jesus begins to define the nature of genuine belief. He's defining genuine faith. And the first thing we learn is Jesus doesn't accept admiration 
of his moral teaching, he doesn't accept that as an equivalent to faith. He just doesn't. We know that because these people marveled, it says. They marveled, saying, how is it this man has learning when he has never studied? There's no denying the wow factor about Jesus in this text. He could, he could really impress a crowd. They were all stunned at his wisdom. They found the whole thing just about beyond explanation. It was amazing, but not enough for Jesus. He could have amazed that crowd just by listening to his brothers and coming up to Jerusalem right away with a bag full of miracles. But that wasn't what he was after. He was going to die. He was going to die as God's lamb for the sins of these people in six months at Passover. And he knew it. Did the people sense he was the final redemptive revelation from Father God that's the issue of the text. Jesus wants to know. Did they hear God speaking when Jesus spoke? 16. So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. No one, no one believes in Jesus in this New Testament sense until he or she separates him from all other voices, all other authorities, all other options. Every once in a while, I, I pull some old books off the shelf. In 1657, 1657, George Hutchison, pastor of a small church in Edinburgh, wrote a wonderful, though somewhat hard to read because of the dated English, a commentary on John's gospel. And here's his summary on verses 15 and 16. And what I want to do is I want to read those verses again first, and then I'm going to go right into Hutchison's comments on them, okay? So you all track them with me? I'm going to read the two verses that he's going to be talking about, and then read his comments. Here are the verses. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? And so Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Hutchison writes, Whatever be the seeming great effects of Christ's doctrine among a people, but so long as they lack genuine faith, it will be all to no purpose. For even though they marveled, Yet since they believed not, it was, in the best of them, nothing but stupidity. The least degree of saving faith is greater than all the admiration without it. It's that last sentence. The least degree of saving faith is greater than all the admiration without it. Listen to the talk shows today. Listen to leaders and entertainers and commentators. They think they're posting a Christian endorsement when they talk about Jesus' teaching on love or tolerance or forgiveness. 
They think they can advance the Christian cause when they talk about Jesus' love for the poor and the distressed. And all those things are very important points of New Testament teaching, but they aren't unique to the ideals and values of Jesus Christ. They can be gleaned from any number of moral leaders, philosophers, prophets, gurus. You can, you can include Jesus' teachings among them, but you don't need Jesus to be encouraged to live kindly and generously and lovingly. And our text says it is never enough in the mind of Jesus to marvel at his words. Admiration without genuine faith, admiration has no redemptive power. Point number two. Receiving divine light from the words of Jesus Christ doesn't happen automatically just because his teaching is heard. It's in 17 and 18. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking of my own authority. Note the order. So this is one. That's two. It takes more than a sharp mind, apparently, to know spiritual truth. The pursuit of Christ can never be merely an intellectual hunt. Note carefully the sequence of the words in verse 17. If anyone's will is to do his will, he will know. To do, he will know. Of course, the mind is involved, but the order of our Lord's words is strange. First willing, then knowing. Not just thinking and then knowing, but willing, then knowing. Now, if Jesus is telling the truth, if his words aren't his alone, but the words of the one who sent him, verse 16, well then those words properly require a submitted will that befits the authority of God himself. I mean, they can't be received in a will that's settled in its own way. To listen to the words of Christ without treating them as God's words will result in dead religion and increased spiritual darkness, all the while listening to and perhaps even admiring the things Jesus said. It's, it's a strange paradox. So remember this as you listen to the world speak of Christ. The world at large is not a fit discerner of Jesus Christ. He never promised to reveal himself to anyone and everyone. So what that means is, there's some comfort here, never Never measure the validity of your trust in Christ by their lack of trust in Christ. There's a principle in this text. The heart of Jesus in proclaiming God's redemptive truth is the same kind of heart required for receiving redemptive truth. Let me try and make that maybe clearer. Verse 18 
the one who speaks of his own... Why does Jesus start talking this way at this point? The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. Why is he introducing this subject now? But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. In him there is no falsehood. And so what you're seeing here is Jesus models... Jesus models the kind of heart that we have to have listening to Jesus. Here's the heart Jesus has. He seeks the glory of the one that sent him. See it right, I know it's a mess, right there. He seeks the glory of him who sent him. Jesus doesn't press his own might and greatness. He seeks the glory of the one who sent him. That models a submissive heart. There is no pursuit of his own glory in his incarnate state. He seeks to nourish his whole being around the Father's glory rather than his own. He only has room for the Father's glory in his heart. Now, he tells us that because this is the kind of heart hearers have to have when they listen to Jesus speak. If you will, then you'll know. Three, why people reject the way, the truth, and the life. 19 to 24. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon who's seeking to kill you. I've shown you four or five places in John's account already where they are seeking to kill him. You have a demon who is seeking to kill you. 21, Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well. We studied that healing. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. We know from Jesus' remarks that the people were still upset. Remember, he healed the lame man on the Sabbath. They're still bugged about that. That's what... Jesus means in that 23rd verse, if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? That miracle took place, by the way, in John 5, 1 to 16. And they're still carrying around their anger. They're still bugged about that. And so Jesus makes two points. They're both really important. I want to look at the second point first and then come back to the first point. The second point Jesus makes is they're angry at him without a cause. He no more broke the Sabbath law in healing the lame man than his critics did having their child circumcised on the eighth day if it fell on the Sabbath. 722, Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. Jesus hadn't broken the intent of the Sabbath law. Now, 
Back to the first. I said there were two points. He presses deeper. He exposes their dishonesty. You have to be honest when you respond to Jesus. He exposes their dishonesty. They, they would like to justify seeking to kill him, pretending their motive was their pious devotion to the law. But Jesus, not too subtly, points out that they don't even keep the law of Moses. He says that in verse 19. So Jesus exposes, there's something else going on under the surface of their hearts. This is what leads Jesus to caution, 724, don't judge by appearances, judge with right judgment. Rejection of Jesus has another source than the ones these Jewish leaders wear on the surface. Things aren't the way they appear. We've seen Jesus expose this root before in this chapter. See verses 6 and 7? To his brothers, they're going up to the beginning of the Feast of Booths. Jesus, come on, show yourself. Jesus said, my time has not yet come. Your time is always here. You can go wherever you want, whenever you want. You're fine. Here's why they can do whatever they want. The world cannot hate you. They're not believers. And it says the world, not does not, cannot hate you. It hates me. Do you see the self-awareness in Jesus? It, it hates me. He says this to his own family. This, what, what is going on in the chest of Jesus? The one who's going to die for the sins of the world, John 3, 16, when he says, this world hates me. This world hates me. That's the Jesus you follow. Why does it hate him? Well, here we go. I testify about it. That's the world. <sighs> that its works are evil. So to, 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 to judge with right judgment, as Jesus said, to deal honestly, fruitfully, faithfully with Jesus, it always requires these levels of, of, of repentance, humility, so, back to the title. Is there a way to know divine truth with certainty? Is there a way to receive more from Christ than good ideas? And then, and now, the answer is yes. Yes, but not everyone will receive. And then, and now, our Lord always deals Jesus will only deal with the core of my heart. Jesus never deals with the surface of my life. He doesn't care what color sweater I wear. He deals with the core of my life. Belief in Jesus that bears fruit must always be honest. Honest belief that listens to conscience about the reality of sin Receiving sin-rescuing truth from Jesus requires 
constantly laying aside all deceit. When Jesus said, you take up your cross and follow me, he doesn't mean a physical cross. He means, he means the things I'm inclined to think and live for on my own, Jesus says. That dies every day, Don. And the day it doesn't die, you stop losing truth from me. So that means we constantly have to review our motives. It means we have to constantly examine how much of our decision-making is influenced by the desire to look good to others rather than to bring glory to God. It means I have to quit satisfying myself in the presence of Jesus Christ. David's prayer, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit. How many times does that have to be prayed? Well, daily. <laughs> daily. See, what made David a man's after God's own heart wasn't sinlessness. Good night. We know better than that. What made David a man's after God's own heart was the way he had created me a clean heart. Renew, renew a right spirit. I am not where I need to be. He probably said that every day of his life and it pleased the Lord. If any man wills to do it, with honesty, humility, repentance, he'll know. <laughs>